Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As we'll hear in this episode covering both Acts 23 and 24, sometimes your prison is really your platform. Sometimes the suffering you are trying to escape is actually the ministry God has ordained for you to embrace. Here to walk us through this important story is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Acts chapter 23. You will recall that at the end of chapter 22, Claudius Lysias calls for a council of the Jews so as to determine the precise nature of their concerns with the Apostle Paul. We pick up the story now in verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, we should probably just pause here and notice that Paul was certainly not claiming here to be sinless. He was simply saying that he has acted in obedience with the heavenly vision that he received. He's he's doing what God told him to do. The statement is parallel to what Paul says in a subsequent trial in Acts 26.19. There, Luke records Paul as saying, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. However, Paul's claim to have heard from God and to have been doing what God said does not sit well in our story with the high priest. Verse 2 says this, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, what are we to make of this very unusual exchange? We should point out that Ananias is not the same high priest as the one mentioned back in Acts 4, verse 6. That was Annas. This is Ananias. Ananias had been appointed high priest in AD 47 and then was dismissed in AD 58-59. He was then later assassinated in AD 66 for being too cozy with the Romans. Josephus, the famous Jewish Roman historian, tells us that Ananias was an insolent and hot-tempered man. So it isn't hard to imagine him ordering the Apostle Paul to be struck on the face for saying something that he considered to be blasphemous. It was, however, highly out of order. Leviticus 19 verse 15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So Jewish law, just like Roman law, demanded that judges act in an impartial manner and follow carefully the dictates of the law. There was supposed to be care and and deliberation, careful thought, rather than simply punishing people without due process. Interesting to note, of course, that the Romans follow their laws far more consistently than the Jews follow theirs in both the trial of Jesus and then here again in the trial of the Apostle Paul. Thus, Paul charges this judge with hypocrisy. That's what the term whitewashed wall means. It comes from Ezekiel 13. 
Now, interestingly, Jesus said something very similar to a similar group of people. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. So I share that only to say that I think we should be cautious here in saying that Paul sinned by saying what he said. Now, certainly apostles could sin just because they have unique authority doesn't mean that they are sinless, but I'm just not sure that that is what Luke means for us to see. This is what prophets do in the Bible. They rebuke unjust and hypocritical leaders. Jeremiah does it. Ezekiel does it in the Old Testament. Jesus does it. And here we see Paul doing it. So then, what do do we make of Paul's statement in verse 5 where he seems to be walking back his comments? He says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. There are three commonly given explanations for this. The first one is that Paul had bad eyesight, and he didn't see that it was the high priest who had ordered the soldier to strike him. So if he had seen, maybe he would have chosen his words differently. That is possible. Paul talks about signing his letters in big, clumsy characters. Presumably, as an older man, he had very bad eyesight, as some church legends seem to suggest. As as plausible as that is, it is not the majority view of scholars. Some take a bit of a parallel track. They suggest that Paul simply didn't recognize who was presiding because this wasn't actually a formal trial. It was a, it was a pre-trial called by Claudius Lysias, and, and so quite possible that the high priest would not have been wearing the official robes of his office and, and would therefore have appeared to Paul just like any other man gathered to hear the case. That's also possible. The third suggestion is that Paul is speaking ironically here, as if to say, I did not think that a high priest would conduct himself in such a manner. My mistake. Now, I I think we should just note that good conservative Bible-believing scholars differ here. So whatever you think, we should all probably hold our opinions lightly. Story goes on in verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the councils, Brother, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I like how David Peterson explains this approach by the Apostle Paul. He says, Definition of the main question was actually an expected part of the statement of facts in a forensic defense speech in ancient rhetoric. Paul seeks to change the focus of his trial from the charges listed in chapter 21, verse 28, to the more fundamental theological issue at stake. This enables him to persuade Roman officials of the religious nature of the antagonist against him. It also enables him to challenge Jews about the true hope of Israel and its fulfillment through Jesus. He is being presented to Christian readers as a resourceful witness from whom other missionaries can learn. Close quote. I think that's right. I think we're supposed to be innocent as doves, but also wise as serpents. And I think Paul is doing that. He's shifting the argument so as to divide his opponents and also so as to provide greater opportunity to speak to the central concerns of the gospel. Paul didn't want to spend all of his time debating his own personal piety. He wanted to proclaim the lordship of the resurrected Christ. This subtle shift in emphasis allowed him to kill two birds with one stone. And it worked, at least to some extent. Verse 7. 
And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Claudius Lysias had hoped to use the Jewish Sanhedrin to get to the bottom of their concern with the Apostle Paul. But now, in seeing their own division over the matter, he is no closer to ascertaining an actual legal charge. He doesn't want to start a riot by appearing indifferent to their concerns, but neither is he willing to hand over a Roman citizen to the whims and fancy of a hostile mob. And so, the matter appears to have reached a stalemate. In the meantime, the Apostle Paul is kept in prison. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This must have been very encouraging for Paul. But also, I imagine he received it as a bit of a redirection. Jesus makes clear to Paul that the goal here in this legal process is not Paul's own vindication. The goal is to make use of this opportunity to witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord does not promise Paul a not guilty verdict. He promises him further opportunities to preach the gospel. I imagine that Paul had to pray some version of the not my will but thine be done prayer that night from inside the prison walls. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, this is a bit of an interesting detail. Not, not so much the hasty vow of some zealot Jews, that actually is not surprising, but this part about Paul's sister and his nephew, that comes kind of out of left field. Who are these people and where have they been for the last 22 chapters? Of course, we don't really know much about Paul's family. We know that he says that he's been rich and he's been poor and he's learned to be content in every circumstance. It would seem likely that Paul was rich as a child growing up and attending, as we've said, Hebrew Harvard in the city of Jerusalem. I'm sure that wasn't cheap. It, it, it then seems that he was poor when he was conducting his mission trips. Finances were often an issue, and he had to work with his own hands to support himself. From that detail, some scholars suggest that Paul was cut off from his family resources when he converted to Christianity. But then here, near the end of his life, he, he does appear to be more well-off. He was able, without any difficulty, to pay for three men to complete a Nazarite vow, which suggests to some that Paul had been reconciled 
at least somewhat to his family and had access again to the family resources, enter this sister and her son. Now, we will never know as much about these things as we would like. Luke is not writing a biography of the Apostle Paul. He is writing the story of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and all the world. And right now, he's telling us how it got there, how it got to Rome, at least in part through the imprisonment and trial of the Apostle Paul. So so the focus here is on how this trial ended up getting bumped out of Jerusalem, up to Caesarea, and then ultimately on to Rome. And that story continues in verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, Claudius Lysias' account is not entirely accurate. He presents himself in a very favorable light, claiming to have rescued a Roman citizen from an angry mob which isn't exactly how it went down. He also fails to mention that he had Paul tied up and about to be flogged before actually discovering that he was a citizen. But those details aside, Lysias does what any wise mid-level governmental official would do in this situation. He bumps the problem up the company chain. He has decided that this issue is above his pay grade and he washes his hands of the matter, figuratively speaking. He sends Paul north, to the governor of the region, one Tiberius Claudius Felix, a freed slave, actually, who rose very high through the Roman ranks. He became governor in AD 52, but was so violent and ham-fisted that he was eventually recalled to Rome. It's interesting to note the charge that Lysias records in the letter. Obviously, the conversation has shifted a little bit, at least in his mind. Originally, the charge was that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, but now There's no mention of that. Lysias simply says that Paul finds himself at the center of a theological controversy related to complex matters of Jewish law. Thus, he frames the dispute as essentially theological, as it seems that Paul had hoped. Luke continues the story in verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. 
And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, Herod's praetorium was a beautiful palace, actually, right by the sea. I've been there, and as far as prisons go, you couldn't really ask for anything better. As an unconvicted Roman citizen, Paul would have enjoyed certain freedoms at this point and certain protections that he would not have enjoyed on the road. He probably would not have chosen this imprisonment, but it certainly proved to be fruitful in the long run. God knows best. The Lord is high in the heavens. He sees the whole board and he plays a long game. Thanks be to God. Well, chapter 23 was a relatively short chapter, so we're going to transition right back into chapter 24 for more of this story about the Apostle Paul's journey through the Roman legal system. Pastor Paul, we'll hand it right back over to you. You will recall that Paul is now being held in Herod's Praetorium in Caesarea, awaiting trial before Tiberius Claudius Felix. We pick up the story in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. It was standard procedure then, as now, for plaintiffs to be represented by a barrister or advocate, and so we meet here a person named Tertullus, who may or may not have been a Jew. Scholars go back and forth on that. He was obviously fluent in Greek and likely Latin too, and he was well-versed in Jewish law and tradition. Verse 2 says, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. The substance of the charge is that Paul is a well-known disturber of the peace, a rabble-rouser and ne'er-do-well. And they appear pretty confident in their claims because they don't bother to present any evidence. Paul, in this trial, represents himself. Verse 10 continues the story. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anybody or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. 
But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In his speech, Paul solidly refutes the charges that have been made against him. He's not a rabble-rouser. He simply worships God according to the way. That's a very interesting description of the Christian faith. D.A. Carson says here, Christianity is more than a belief system. It's a way of living. Moreover, it provides a way to God, a way to be forgiven and accepted by the living God. And that way is Jesus himself. I think that's very helpful. I remember a few years ago now, it was trendy for people to say, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. I think the idea there was to reemphasize the behavior side of Christianity as opposed to just the belief side. But as is often the case, I think there was a bit of an overreaction because Christianity is a set of beliefs and a set of behaviors. It's both necessarily and inseparably both. And so we should seek out language and terminology that reflects that. And this term, the way, does that very nicely. It's also interesting to note that Paul says that he worships the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Again, that's fascinating language. I wonder how many contemporary evangelicals would dare to use that language. Now, Paul isn't saying that he believes that the law is saving. He just says that his way of worshiping God accords perfectly with everything written in the law and the prophets. In fact, I. Howard Marshall goes so far as to say that Paul, in these various trials, argues that Judaism, rightly understood, should culminate in faith in Jesus, closed quote. Paul is saying that he's simply following the law and the prophets to their logical conclusion, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm the most Jewish person of all. I'm just going where the Bible leads me. It's hard to argue with that. David Peterson says much the same about Paul's speech. He says Paul defends his way of worship as authentically Jewish. At the same time, identifying implicitly with the Pharisaic interpretation of Scripture in terms of fundamental beliefs, close quote. Now to Felix, this must have sounded very much like an intramural squabble between various factions of Jews. And thus, he appears unwilling to take an immediate position. Verse 22 says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Felix claims to need more information. And he does what wise leaders will often do. He reserves judgment. Of course, As Luke tells us, his motives for delaying were mixed, to say the least. But there is often wisdom in simply going slow so as to diffuse tension and gather as much information as humanly possible. 
Felix is presented as a man who doesn't quite have the courage of his convictions. He was interested in Paul and intrigued by his message, but not enough to risk his position and not enough so as to be averse to the opportunity to profit at Paul's expense. Thus, he left Paul to languish in prison. But as languishing goes, this was languishing with purpose. I love John Pollock's description of this particular imprisonment in his biography called A Life of Paul. He sketches out for us what those nearly two years would have looked like. Now, whether everything he says is accurate or not, I obviously can't say for sure, but it is all possible and even plausible. He describes those months this way. He says, the wet Mediterranean winter gave way to the hot summer of 58, made bearable for Paul by sea breezes and by permission to talk on the shore or where he wished, chained lightly to a soldier. Aristarchus of Thessalonica accepted the status of prisoner in order to serve Paul. The other delegates had returned to Asia and Europe, except Luke, who took the opportunity for a thorough investigation of the oral and written evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and of subsequent events. Must have been encouraging for Paul each time Luke arrived back in Caesarea after long talks with Mary, the Lord's mother, or Mary Magdalene, if she still lived, or Bacchus and the, and the once blind beggar of Jericho, or as they sat together accompanied by Paul's soldier, while Philip the evangelist told of the early days after the coming of the Holy Spirit and described Stephen as he knew him, which Paul could confirm from another angle, closed quote. Again, I can't say for sure whether all that is entirely accurate, but it is all plausible. Some scholars suggest that Paul would have also written letters to the churches during this time, although it's hard to be sure which letters were written when and where. The point is, however frustrating Paul found this delay, it proved very fruitful and very helpful in terms of the long-term health and stability of the church. Verse 27 concludes the chapter when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. From history, we know that Felix was recalled to Rome in the spring of AD 59 after a riot in Caesarea. He narrowly escaped execution and was never again employed in public service, and we know uh, nothing about whether or not he ever converted to Christianity. Meanwhile, the Apostle Paul remained in prison and remained active in his witness to the Lord. His imprisonment, burdensome as it must have been, nevertheless served to edify the church, glorify Christ, and fulfill prophecy. For indeed, the Lord had said, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness, Luke 21, 12 to 13. Jesus said that, and Paul is living that here in the concluding chapters of the book of Acts. This is all part of the plan. Paul figured out that sometimes your prison is really your platform. Sometimes the suffering you want out of is actually the very mission that God has called you into. Paul made the most of his opportunity. May the Lord give each of us the strength and the grace to do the same. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have for today. 
As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 